I'd like you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Colossians chapter 1. And this morning we're going to be looking at a very, very special passage of Scripture. You know, uh, in the Bible, all of God's words are important. There's, there's not anything we can say is not important because God put it there and He put it there for a reason. But in the Scriptures, there are certainly verses and certainly passages that stand out because uh, they have a powerful and very unique statement to make. Every, every child in Sunday school learns John 3.16 because it is the singular, focal, powerful verse about God's love for the world through Jesus Christ. So everyone memorizes John 3.16. There are other passages that stand out for other reasons. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is a great chapter about <clears throat> faith and the great men and women of faith who have uh, lived throughout the, the period of the Scriptures. And you can always turn to there for that. Well, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, is one of the greatest passages in Scripture identifying who is Jesus. It is one of the outstanding six verses. And if you are not presently uh, memorizing Scripture, uh, some other verse, I would encourage you, to memorize these six verses. I bet you could do it this week. You know, a verse a day. <clears throat> and put it together. These six verses are some of the most powerful proclamation of who Jesus Christ is in all of the Scripture. And we're going to begin our study of that this morning. I'd like you to read with me, beginning in verse 15. And He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in the heavens... And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death to present you before him holy and blameless. Father, I want to ask this morning that you bless your word and that you speak to our hearts from it, that we be drawn into the heart of this message and Lord, that you give us a burning desire to know, to really know Jesus, to focus our attention on Him, and to see in Him the all-sufficiency that He is for everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. I ask it in His precious name. Amen. You know, the Colossians were facing some struggles and uh, they were very quickly kind of 
set upon by false teachers that wanted to distract them from the simplicity and the glory and the majesty and exclusiveness of Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to bring correction to that thinking. They had been told, um, you really can't go right to God. And Jesus is not enough. I mean, he's, he's a great piece of the puzzle. But you need more help. You've got to have other people, um, you know, and other angelic beings and other powers. You've got to have them uh, come in on the deal and, and help you make that connection with God. Jesus is just one step in the right direction. And you need to go through certain rituals and you need to perform uh, certain routines and, and obey certain rules and regulations in order to be able to connect with God. That was not just a problem in the first century. Does that remind you of any branch of the Christian faith today that has added all kinds of intermediaries and accessory beings and, um, dare I say, patron saints and, and rituals and other kinds of things that are added in there as a part of the process of trying to get uh, to God who is so distant and so austere? And Paul wants to bring correction to that notion and bring their focus back to the supremacy and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ who alone is sufficient as Creator God and Redeemer God. And in this passage, he makes it absolutely clear that, that Christ is the Creator and that He is the Redeemer. And He is our Lord and Savior. And He is all we need for life and for godliness. And all we need in terms of connecting with God and having a personal relationship with Him. Now, I'm not going to take as much time with every phrase or clause in this passage as I am with the first one this morning. But... Um, we have a kind of a standing uh, gauge in, in our office about my preaching. If my outline is more than one page, it's more than an hour. And so uh, I, I started working on what I wanted to communicate, and it came out to a page. Well, actually, I had to make it 9.6 font to make it fit on the page. Uh, so, you know, I got, I've got plenty of stuff to preach on here. As it turns out, it takes up just the first phrase. He is the image of the invisible God. Like I say, I'm not going to take as much time with every clause as I am with this one. But we need to just park here for a moment. And we need to consider Jesus. We need to consider Jesus. Who is the image of the Invisible God. And the first thing I want us to think about is what the word image means. In Greek, and, and you'll recognize this when I pronounce the word, the Greek word is icon. Icon. And that word is used in a couple of different ways in the period of time in which Paul wrote and in the New Testament. One thing an image can mean is an exact likeness, like, like a stamp or an impress. And uh, when you think about that, think about Lincoln's profile on the penny. You know, you see that, you say, that's an image of Lincoln. 
I mean, you know it instantly. You've seen his face round so often that you pick up a penny and you say, that's Lincoln, that's his image. Remember in the Gospels, when they were asking Jesus a question about taxation, hoping to kind of trip him up, he said, hand me a coin. And when they handed him a coin, he used this word. Whose icon is on this coin? Well, it's Caesar's. Well, then render to Caesar what's his and render to God what's his. Jesus used that same word, image, because the, 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 the picture, the embossment, the stamping on the coin was Caesar's. And everybody could say, oh, that's Caesar. That's what he looks like. And so image can mean an, an exact likeness, like a, a, a stamping or a picture. But image can also mean a representation of the nature or character. Um, we see the Statue of Liberty, and we think of liberty in the United States, and uh, historically, perhaps you even think of immigration and Ellis Island and all that the Statue of Liberty stands for. There's a concept there behind that statue. Ancient uh, people with their pagan polytheistic gods, their worship of false gods, created idols that were the images of their deities. And boy, you look at some of them and you know they probably had to have some demonic help because they're so hideous in their appearance. But they actually used the images that brought to mind the attributes of a god. They didn't necessarily think that that particular stone statue was the god, although they, they worshipped it, but they thought that it represented the deity uh, as they envisioned his attributes. And so in that sense, it was not kind of an exact picture, but it was a representation of what they would have thought uh, a being would have appeared like. I think the term, as it applies to Jesus in these verses, actually incorporates both of those meanings. Because the writer of Hebrews, and I'll talk about this a little more, uh, a little more later, but the writer of Hebrews says he is the exact representation of his nature. And so there, there is a close alignment of Jesus in the flesh and God the Father. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And I want to read a little bit of this uh, for you this morning. I'd like you to follow and see it for yourself in Revelation uh, chapters 4 and 5. This is an interesting passage of Scripture because here, John, well, he has already had a vision of Jesus glorified. Remember the last time that John saw Jesus? Remember what was happening? It was the ascension. They stood around outside of uh, Jerusalem and watched Jesus as he rose up into the clouds. And the cloud, the scripture says, kind of covered him and received him out of their sight. And that's the last time, as far as we know, that John saw Jesus. And on that occasion... Even though it was after the resurrection, Jesus looked very much like they did. He looked like a normal person. And they saw him, rather abnormally, <laughs> rise up out of their midst and ascend into the heavens. Well, in the aisle 
of Patmos, John was uh, in the Spirit, he says, on the Lord's Day. And the scene opens in chapter 1 with a vision of Jesus, which is quite different. He describes him as one whose hair was white like wool, whose eyes were ablaze, whose feet were glowing like uh, brass or iron when it's caused to glow in the furnace. He described the glory and majesty of one at whose feet he fell down as a dead man. You know, he was just astounded by the image of Jesus in his glorification. Uh, John had not seen this kind uh, of representation, but he had been privileged to see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when his glory was revealed there and he shone and his raiment shone, garments shone kind of like the sun and Peter and James and John were there with him on the mountain and they, they saw that dazzling image of his brightness. But in chapter 4 of Revelation, we have a different scene unfolding. After there has been some exchange and Jesus has given to, to John messages for each of the seven churches, In chapter 4, John says, I was carried by the Spirit up into the heavens, and as we discover, he was actually carried into an area where the throne of God is. And he tries to describe that for us as we look in chapter 4 of Revelation. And follow along with me, and we're going to pause to think about the meaning occasionally. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, I just want to stop there and, and I want you to begin to visualize with me this image of what John is seeing. He says, I was transported in the Spirit into the heavens, and I saw a throne. And I saw one sitting on the throne. Now, we find out, and I'll prove it to you in a moment, that this is not Jesus the Son. This is God the Father. And as John beholds Him, Although he has a hard time describing his his appearance, uh, he talks about uh, jasper and he talks about other kinds of stones and he talks about something like a rainbow and he talks about uh, other things that are happening. But notice that the image of the one on the throne is seated. Already there are hints at a being who is similar in form to we who are human. John begins to perceive this. 
And he says in verse 5, And from the throne proceeded flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal. And in the center around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first was like a lion, the second like a calf. The third had the face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And the four creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So now we know that the person sitting on the throne is the Lord God Almighty. And these four uh, special angelic creatures are constantly crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when they did this, verse 9 uh, the uh, giving honor and glory and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art Thou our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power, for You made everything, and because of Your will uh, it exists. All things exist and were created. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now we get more information. We find out that this being on the throne is someone whom uh, they are worshiping as the Lord and God. And they recognize that he is the one who lives forever and ever, which is the same as (coughs) saying he, he is eternal life. And now he has a right hand which is holding a book. Well, if he has a right hand, we may infer that he has a left hand. And what John is seeing is the image of one sitting on the throne who is holding a book in his hand. Very, very human-like in the sense that John is getting. But certainly not human in any uh, sense of his nature. And then as he discovers in verse 3 of chapter 5, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. I began to weep because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now, we are told about one that John unmistakably recognizes as Jesus. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah, and he is a uh, root from the seed of, uh, of David, the root of David. And this is Jesus Christ, the, the, the incarnate Son of God, whom John recognizes his name. And he says, And I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, are you seeing this in your mind? The one is sitting on the throne. He has the book in his right hand. Now comes the lamb who was slain, who is of the root of David and 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he steps to the throne and takes the book out of the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. So you have a very natural kind of reaction that you and I experience on a regular basis, don't we? May I borrow your Bible a minute, Frank? There you go. See? It's just like that. You see how human-like that is in its experience. John is seeing something very natural. And he's describing it as something that two human beings might do. But these are not human beings, because we already know that the one sitting on the throne is the Lord God Almighty. And then he says, And when he had taken the book, verse 8 of chapter 5, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Aren't you glad to know your prayers are never lost? These elders are hanging on to them, offering them to the Lamb. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou. Now this is the Lamb. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for (coughs) you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and nation, any doubt about whom we speak. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Now notice that both the Lamb of God and the one on the throne receive worship and glory and honor and praise. And the imagery that we have here is that God the Father is sitting on the throne and next to Him is Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Root of David. And there can be no question that the Father and the Son and the Spirit of God are all eternal God, deity, worthy of worship and adoration and praise. We're told that when Jesus ascended, He sat down at the right hand at the throne of God. But in two occasions, we see Him standing. We see Him standing to receive Stephen, who was martyred, come into His presence. And we see Him standing here in Revelation to take the book with the seals and open it up as the revelation of the end times begins to unfold. And so on occasion, Jesus stands up. I want to be careful in my description this morning because I think that all heresy begins with truth and then carries it too far. 
And I want to take care that we don't go beyond what the Scripture says. But there is a certain human-like quality to God. And in Genesis, when it says we are made in His image, there is a certain God-like quality to human beings. In fact, in all of creation, we have a unique posture and unique attributes. We were designed to stand upright on two feet and <clears throat> from a position of, of majesty to look out upon creation. There is no question in the book of Genesis that, that Adam and Eve were the crowning mark in glory of God's creation when he said, let us make man in our image. And so in the image of God, he made them man, male and female, he made them. Chapter 5 says he called their name Adam in the image and in the likeness of God. So when Jesus comes robed in human flesh to this planet, there is a merging of the imagery of the eternal God and of humanity as Christ is clothed with human flesh, but unveils to us the glory of God. And we in His image, before the fall certainly, also had that attribute uh, of the upright posture of the, of the mind and logic and reason and capacity and language and, and, and uh, true covenantal love and all of the things that are characteristic of God that He built into us that are unique in all of creation. Because when you think of man... Human beings, we were intended to also think of God. Not that we are God, but we were intended to bear His likeness. And Jesus Christ comes precisely in His image. There's glory and majesty in the throne of God and in the person of God that far surpasses what can be a packed into a body. God is non-corporeal. That means He doesn't have a body. And He is everywhere present at once. He is omnipresent throughout His universe. He permeates the entire creation. There's nowhere you can go that God isn't. And yet, somewhere out there, there is a place that is the, the locus, the the, the place where God sits upon a throne. And John saw that place. And as he described it to us, it has striking familiarity. But then we ask the question, aside from form and image, but what is God like? Many people want to know the answer to that. What is God like? People are confused by theology that paints Him with different colors and ideas of His behavior. Many people say that, well, the Old Testament 
has a God who is vengeful and, and angry and judgmental, and the New Testament has Jesus who is tender and meek and mild. And so there is a disparity between the old and the new, they think. It's really because they don't know the Scriptures very well that that conclusion is drawn. But many people wonder, what is God like? Can I get to know Him? (laughs) If I do, will I like Him? Uh, C.S. Lewis speaks uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia about... um, the lion who is not safe. And people wonder, is our God safe? Um, the name jumps out of my mind right now, but Wild at Heart was written by John Eldridge. Thank you. John Eldridge also speaks of God who is a bit on the wild and dangerous side. And I know what they're trying to say, but they're creating a a portraiture of God that may not be a good visualization of Him. People who wonder what God is like are, are not new to the scene. Philip was in that very same position. As Jesus met with His disciples to eat that last meal together, He began to speak quite openly and plainly with them about things that were going to be happening. And, you know, when he says, I'm going to be going away, I'm going to leave you guys, but I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and wherever I am, I'm going to bring you to be with me. And then he said, you know where I'm going. And Thomas said, I'm lost. I I don't have a clue where you're going. And Jesus said, Well, you know me, Thomas. I am the truth and the life and the way. No man comes to the Father but by me. I, I'm the way. I mean, just keep following me, and I'll take you where I am. And in the midst of that conversation, Philip, who I think was just... I, Everything he had hoped for and expected is beginning to move and shift. Do you ever ever have that experience in life sometimes where it seems like the very foundation is shifting? You know, I I get that feeling some days. Maybe it has to do with my age right now, but every once in a while I, I just think everything is changing you know, and, and I want to just drive some stakes in and grab onto the ropes and say, you know, don't change. I'm, I, I'm comfortable. Don't upset me. I really think that's kind of where Philip was. He had followed Jesus for several years now. He had been with him. He, he had believed the things that Jesus had said. He had great hopes and expectations for the future of Israel and uh, and Philip was hopeful, and now here he's at this Last Supper, and Jesus is saying strange things that are upsetting. And Philip blurts out and says, "Just show us the Father. Just show us God. I mean, if we could just see God, 
we would we'd feel better. <laughs> you know, help us out here a little bit. And Jesus turns to Philip, and you can almost hear the wonderment in his question. And he says, Philip, have I spent all this time with you and you still don't know me? I mean, you've seen everything I've done. We've eaten together. We've camped out together on the journeys. We've shared jokes and laughed walking down the path. You know, we've been fishing together. Have I spent this much time and you don't know who I am? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Do you realize how significant that is? To see Jesus is to see God. He is just the same. If you want to know what God is like, study the actions and the words and the mannerisms of Jesus Christ. John, in John's first chapter, if you'd turn there with me, please, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the first chapter, verse 18, John 1, 18, John makes an interesting statement. By the way, he wrote the Gospel before he wrote the book of Revelation. (laughs) No man has seen God at any time. John might have had a little something different to say if he'd written the Gospel after the Revelation. He says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Now, back up to verse 14 with me a moment, and then we'll talk about this, because it's very interesting how it's put. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as of an only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now hold that couplet in mind for a moment. Full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after Me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before Me. Interesting statement, because John was conceived before Jesus, and John was born before Jesus, but he plainly says, He existed before Me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, the coupling of grace and truth in the person of Jesus is an amazing joining of of two realms, the old and the new. The Old Testament is the revelation of the character of God, His holiness. And He makes that plain. And... And the point of preparing us 
through all of that Old Testament period was so that we would understand He is a holy God and He must deal with sin. But in, in the course of revealing His character as a holy God, He is also preparing a people for the coming of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. This is not a new plan that suddenly occurred to Him two-thirds of the way through the Bible. From the very beginning, the heart of God was to redeem the life of human beings. But in the same manner, we go back to the Old Testament, and do you remember in the book of Joshua, when Joshua, that first chapter, the curtain rolls back, Moses is off the scene. Joshua has the responsibility now of leading the Israelites across the Jordan River to conquer the land of Canaan. What are they about to do? They're about to go into Canaan. They're about to overrun the Canaanites in war, take over their land and establish their own cities at the command of God. And who shows up to lead them but Jesus Christ? You remember Joshua has this vision and he sees someone before him who identifies himself as the captain of the host of the Lord. And that captain of the host of the Lord, as we read the chapter, is an Old Testament appearance of Christ. who is about to lead the armies of Israel to battle in judgment against the sins of the Canaanites. Because they have had four centuries to get their act together. And they have persisted in their sinfulness. And God had said to Abraham, the iniquity of the Canaanites has not run its course, but when it runs the gamut, I will bring judgment and I will give you and your descendants, their land. And Jesus Christ shows up to lead the armies of Israel as the captain of the Lord's host to empower Joshua. He is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And this Jesus, who is the, the epitome, the living reality of truth, is also the one who brings the good news of grace, that God has come to reconcile the world to Himself and offer forgiveness for sin. There is no inconsistency between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. They are one and the same. And whenever Jesus Christ appears before the Incarnation as a theophany, an appearance of God in the Old Testament. This is the one who in the temple made a cord, a whip out of cords and violently drove out the money changers. This meek, gentle, mild Jesus. Swinging a whip, throwing over tables, scattering the coins, freeing the animals, driving out the people. You have made my father's house a den of Thieves, and I won't have it. This is not 
someone who is a Casper milk toast. This is Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. Who is full of the character of God. But see him. When he says to the disciples, people brought a bunch of kids and I told them to go somewhere else. And Jesus says, wait a minute, hold the phone. Bring the children to me. And he takes them in his lap and he hugs them. And he says, fellas, the kingdom of heaven is like these little guys. Let the children come to me. Their heart is where yours needs to be. This is the one who bailed out a, an embarrassed couple in their wedding day when all of a sudden at the marriage feast they ran out of wine and oh, it was a disaster and Jesus turns the water to wine. This is the one who heals the sick. This is the one who cast out the demons. This is the one who stood on the bow of the ship and commanded the wind and waves, Be still! This is the one who looks at the prostitute thrown at his feet and with tender mercy says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. This is the one who walked with them on the road to Emmaus later and opened their eyes to see the Scriptures. This is the one who, they recognized him, by the way, because when he broke the bread, their eyes were opened. A very familiar action that Jesus had done so many times in their presence. This is the one they ate with. This is the one they drank with. This is the one they walked with and talked with. They heard him preach and teach. They saw his love for people. They were there when he raised up Peter's mother-in-law. They were there when he raised people from the dead. They were there at the tomb of Lazarus. They were there hearing the words of Jesus. And he said to them, the words that I speak, they're not my words. I don't ever speak on my own initiative. I only say what I hear my Father saying. And the deeds that you have seen me done, I have never acted on my own initiative. Everything you've seen me do, from, from, from laughing at the humorous situations, to throwing out the money changers, to healing the sick, is what my Father has told me to do. I have only done those things He has shown me. Everything I have done has been my Father in action. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Follow Him in the Gospel paths. Read the stories. Listen to the sermons. See the humor. Hear the parables. This is God in human flesh. He has revealed the Father like only one who has come from the very heart and bosom of God in that intimate connection of eternal dwelling. Only this one could so perfectly portray Him. 
And so Paul says to the Colossians, and he says to us, through the Holy Spirit, He is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to know God? Consider Jesus. Meditate upon Jesus. Paul said, the goal of my life is to know Him. I want to know Jesus. Thank you, O God, for giving us your Son in human flesh, that that which was invisible and beyond our comprehension could come and pitch his tent in our midst and we could see him and thereby know you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for always doing your Father's will so that we could see God lived out before our eyes. We praise you and we give you glory. Amen.